Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 6, The Good, the Bad, and the Foolish. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. We find ourselves in the midst of a transition in this week's episode. King Solomon is no more. Building projects have been completed, projects that largely relied on labor from the northern tribes. And so now those tribes, through their spokesperson Jeroboam, has officially requested to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, that he lighten the load on them and give them a break, since all the building projects are complete. If Rehoboam takes the load off of them, they pledge their full support and happy service. In last week's episode, Rehoboam had asked for three days to consider his answer, and then pursued advice from his father's old advisors, and also from his drinking buddies. We won't repeat all the details from last week's episode. Fortunately, when Rehoboam does give his answer to Jeroboam and the tribes of the north after three days' time, Rehoboam leaves that colorful genital metaphor out. Unfortunately, he keeps the rest of his drinking buddies' advice and promises more work and harsher discipline. And that's the moment. It's the boulder that breaks the camel's back. The northern tribes justifiably think that they have been doing all the work but deriving none of the benefit. Think taxation without representation in your habitat, only even worse. They've done all the work and derived none of the benefit of being part of the glorious nation of Solomon, or rather, Israel. In the face of Rehoboam's petty swagger and immature machismo, they secede from the nation, lamenting that the house of David and Solomon and Rehoboam has no regard for them and has proven that it will not look out for them. They say they must instead look out for themselves since these kings from Judah have not. As they turn their backs on Rehoboam and secede from the nation, their parting shot conveys their scorn at his lack of concern for them. What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Uh, given their portability, the tense imperative is akin to, let's roll, let's move, let's get out of here. Look after your own house, David. Uh, this is First Kings twelve sixteen kicking in any number of you're-going-to-miss-me-when-I'm-gone daydreams on their part. You'll have to do all your own dirty work from now on. And so the northern ten tribes start to head back home with their backs to the new king of a revised nation, now only a small fraction of the size it had started the day with. Rehoboam seems to still be listening to his pal's advice and sends his czar of forced labor an ill-fated fellow named Adoram, to whip the north into shape and make them toe the line he's just drawn in the sand, to tell the north to stop their belly-aching and get back to work. Not surprisingly, 
Adoram is unceremoniously stoned to death by the receding tribes. Uh, that parallel is in First Chronicles 10.18. Rehoboam finally exhibits a bit of sense and hustles himself out of the escalating situation and hops the first chariot back to Jerusalem. Since Jeroboam, the union rep who's bravely though unsuccessfully brought their case before Rehoboam, since Jeroboam has already proven his mettle against their former king and freshly minted enemy, the northern tribes, who as a majority of ten out of the original twelve, claim the title of kingdom of Israel for themselves, and they make Jeroboam their king. Take careful note of this northern ten tribes being the nation of Israel now, or things will quickly get confusing. Incensed at this rebellion, Rehoboam gathers an army as soon as his chariot comes to a stop in Jerusalem. He's got the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Though some of the tribe of Benjamin will cast their lot with the north, a greater portion of them, those living closest to Judah's lands, will be allied to Judah and part of the new southern kingdom. If you want to be extremely precise about it, a smidge of folks from tribe Ephraim, chiefly the residents of the border town Beth Horon, are also part of the southern kingdom. So to generalize, Rehoboam has got a couple tribes with an extra handful thrown in with him, and thus the advantage of speed. Whereas the northern ten have a lot more real estate across which news and then responding soldiers have to travel, the southern two, point two, are right there together, and Rehoboam is able to strike quickly before the other side can organize. Only we tell them not to. I did not bring them all to this point only to have my sons destroy each other in civil war like this. So I light up a new prophet, Shemaiah. Uh, you can find this in Second Chronicles 17.8. Shemaiah is a Levite whose heart and life sincerely follow me, and through Shemaiah we instruct Rehoboam to send home the troops he's about to aim at members of his own family. Although Rehoboam listens to me and doesn't incite civil war by sending troops against his northern brothers, he worsens tensions with the north by building up the defenses of the towns along his new borders. Picture all the forts that sprung up all over the south and north in the American Civil War, and you get the idea. Judah's cities at its northern borders may not have cannon installed, but they do get provisioned with plenty of shields and spears behind very strong walls. That's Second Chronicles 11. It should be noted that the writer of Kings is so excited about the shenanigans up north, he cuts straight to Jeroboam and his saga, skipping over southern developments entirely. In like manner, Chronicles is so Judah-centric that none of the goings-on up north are mentioned, with the exception of the indication that the Levites and priests that have been living in the northern kingdom all moved down to Judah and Jerusalem because of what Jeroboam's done up there. So let's see what Jeroboam has been up to since being made king of the northern kingdom. And even though it pains me to do so, we're going to start referring to the northern kingdom as Israel. 
This is tough, given all that we have gone through with our people, gone through with all the children of Jacob and the offspring of every one of his sons. When I changed Jacob's name to Israel, it was to mark his special relationship with me. After all, I am the L part at the end. It was to mark the special relationship I would have with all his children. It was not so the name Israel could refer to a portion of Jacob's family that had fractured off from others to go their own way. But as long as we are at it, let us shift from southern kingdom to Judah in our discussion, even with the knowledge that it should be Judah with most of Benjamin and even a little bit of Ephraim thrown in too. Judah's mother Leah meant for her son's name to be a marker of her praise for me, and not the designation of a portion of the fractured family writ large as a kingdom. But Israel and Judah, they are. While Rehoboam is building up his border cities in Judah, Jeroboam is setting up Shechem with all its poignancy as his capital of Israel a good choice both for all the historical resonance we mentioned last time, as well as for its military defensibility, since it's up in the mountains of Ephraim between Mounts Gerizim and Ebal. If you listen hard, you can still hear the antiphonal chorus of the blessings and curses echoing across the valley. Once he's got his capital fortified, Jeroboam beefs up his eastern border at Penuel to protect against any incursion from the Ammonites who might think this moment of instability is the perfect time to make a move against him. Remember, King Rehoboam's mama is an Ammonite princess, so her folks back home would take an instant dislike to Jeroboam and his putting himself against their grandson-slash-nephew king. Those housekeeping tasks done, Jeroboam turns his attention to governing this new people, and his first thought, like that of many politicians, is one of self-preservation. The whole purpose of the whole United Nation for years now has been the construction of our temple and we've only just recently taken up residence in our resplendent home away from home. At this point, about 33 years or so have passed since our move-in date. Jeroboam's instant fear is that if his people keep bringing their sacrifices to Jerusalem in Judah at the temple which we've set as the place to worship us, they'll switch their allegiance back to Rehoboam, since he is, after all, king over the land they have to go through and get to in order to worship me. It's hard to imagine a more spectacular failure on the part of any king in history in comparison to the actions Jeroboam takes to stop the recurrent tide of the worshipping northern residents traveling to and from Jerusalem. To eliminate the need for the people to worship me where I've told them to worship me, Jeroboam sets up worship sites within Israel's borders. Since it's all in the name of convenience, he goes ahead and puts one up in Dan in his northernmost territory, in addition to one in Bethel near Israel's new southern border. That way people can choose whichever's easier to get to as their preferred sacrificial site. That in itself 
in view of all the exclusivity with which we've commissioned our temple, would have been bad enough. More on that in a moment. Enough to put Jeroboam on the naughty list. But that's just the beginning. The real kicker isn't that Jeroboam tells his people to worship me from within their own borders. It's that he puts a golden calf at each site, telling the people to worship them. Yep, you heard right. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. 1 Kings 12, 28-33 sounds just like Exodus, but you already noticed that. Jeroboam knows he can't build another ark to serve as a nexus of our presence. By definition, the ark is singular and unique. So, by the way, is the temple. But Jeroboam's not going to let a detail like that stop him. Jeroboam wants to have something physical to represent me, like the ark. Otherwise, his new convenient worship sites won't compete with all the imagery and meaning of my temple and presence there. Although, to clarify, the ark doesn't represent me. It represents my presence. Two different things. In fact, my manifest presence, my Shekinah above the ark, established again and seen clearly at Solomon's dedication, the clearest reason for our temple to now serve as our exclusive contact point with our children, along with the fact that I said so. Since all the Ite neighbors up north think that their god, their lord, remember Baal, can simply mean lord, or can serve as the proper name of the Canaanite god of fertility and harvest, their lord, their Baal, is worshipped in the image of a bull. So Jeroboam makes his new plan for worship as user-friendly as possible and sets up statues of young bulls to represent me as the nation's lord. Which totally backfires because as the nation's lord, I have instructed my children to never worship any image regardless of what it looks like or whom it may represent. So Jeroboam immediately sets aside the very real option he has to walk on the way. I make this choice clear to Jeroboam early on, before he even becomes king in 1 Kings eleven thirty-eight. Take a moment and look that exchange up, why don't you? Now instead, Jeroboam essentially leaps off the way. He gives no consideration to my statutes or commands with regard to worship, and makes his decisions based solely on appeal, culture, and convenience. It turns out those three factors are just as much a part of your life as they were of Jeroboam's. Appeal, culture, and convenience. Sometimes it is very inconvenient to stay on the way especially when your peers and the culture around you are clamoring in a very different path, calling for you to join them. Even though we are in thick narrative with what's going on with the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah, your story is there with them in whatever conflicts you are dealing with, whatever temptations there are to take the easy path that leads away from me. 
Take courage, friend. Stay with me on the way. If you've strayed, I can handle that too, as you will see in time my ability to use even the rebellion of both of these kings to further my purposes. So never hesitate to step back on the way with me if you've stepped off a bit. In the meantime, it'll be far easier if you just stay with me, because I am always with you, friend, as we walk together on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.